letters from strangers who have found something in a story of mine to commend or to condemn. My interest in this department of my correspondence is ever fresh. I opened this particular letter with all the zest of pleasurable anticipation with which I had opened so many others. The postmark, Algiers, had aroused my interest and curiosity especially at this time, since it was Algiers that was presently to witness the termination of my coming sea voyage in search of sport and adventure. Before the reading of that letter was completed, lions and lion hunting had fled my thoughts, and I was in a state of excitement bordering upon frenzy. It, well, read it yourself, and see if you, too, do not find food for frantic conjecture, for tantalizing doubts, and for a great hope. Here it is. Dear Sir, I think that I have run across one of the most remarkable coincidences in modern literature. But let me start at the beginning. I am, by profession, a wanderer upon the face of the earth. I have no trade, nor any other occupation. My father bequeathed me a competency. Some remoter ancestors lust to roam. I have combined the two and invested them carefully and without extravagance. I became interested in your story, At the Earth's Core, not so much because of the probability of the tale, as of a great and abiding wonder that people should be paid real money for writing such impossible trash. You will pardon my candor, but it is necessary that you understand my mental attitude toward this particular story, that you may credit that which follows. Shortly thereafter, I started for the Sahara in search of a rather rare species of antelope that is to be found only occasionally within a limited area at a certain season of the year. My chase led me far from the haunts of man. It was a fruitless search, however, in so far as the antelope is concerned. But one night, as I lay courting sleep at the edge of a little cluster of date palms that surround an ancient well in the midst of the arid, shifting sands, I suddenly became conscious of a strange sound coming apparently from the earth beneath my head. It was an intermittent ticking. No reptile or insect with which I am familiar reproduces any such notes. I lay for an hour, listening intently. At last my curiosity got the better of me. I arose, lighted my lamp, and commenced to investigate. My bedding lay upon a rug stretched directly upon the warm sand. The noise appeared to be coming from beneath the rug. I raised it but found nothing, yet at intervals the sound continued. I dug into the sand with the point of my hunting knife. A few inches below the surface of the sand I encountered a solid substance that had the feel of wood beneath the sharp steel. Excavating about it, I unearthed a small wooden box. From this receptacle issued the strange sound that I had heard. How had it come here? What did it contain? In attempting to lift it from its burying place, I discovered that it seemed to be held fast by means of a very small insulated cable running farther into the sand beneath it. My first impulse was to drag the thing loose by main strength, but fortunately I thought better of this and fell to examining the box. I soon saw that it was covered by a hinged lid which was held closed by a simple screw-hook and eye. It took but a moment to loosen this and raise the cover when, to my utter astonishment, 
I discovered an ordinary telegraph instrument clicking away within. What in the world, thought I, is this thing doing here? That it was a French military instrument was my first guess, but really there didn't seem much likelihood that this was the correct explanation when one took into account the loneliness and remoteness of the spot. As I sat gazing at my remarkable find, which was ticking and clicking away there in the silence of the desert night, trying to convey some message which I was unable to interpret, my eyes fell upon a bit of paper lying in the bottom of the box beside the instrument. I picked it up and examined it. Upon it were written but two letters. D.I. They meant nothing to me then. I was baffled. Once, in an interval of silence upon the part of the receiving instrument, I moved the sending key up and down a few times. Instantly the receiving mechanism commenced to work frantically. I tried to recall something of the Morse code with which I had played as a little boy, but time had obliterated it from my memory. I became almost frantic as I let my imagination run riot among the possibilities for which this clicking instrument might stand. Some poor devil at the unknown other end might be in dire need of succor. The very franticness of the instrument's wild clashing betokened something of the kind. And there sat I, powerless to interpret and so powerless to help. It was then that the inspiration came to me. In a flash there leaped to my mind the closing paragraphs of the story I had read in the club at Algiers. Does the answer lie somewhere upon the bosom of the broad Sahara at the ends of two tiny wires hidden beneath a lost cairn? The idea seemed preposterous, experience and intelligence combined to assure me that there could be no slight grain of truth or possibility in your wild tale. It was fiction, pure and simple. And yet, where were the other ends of those wires? What was this instrument ticking away here in the great Sahara but a travesty upon the possible? Would I have believed in it had I not seen it with my own eyes? And the initials, D.I., upon the slip of paper. David's initials were these, David Innes. I smiled at my imaginings. I ridiculed the assumption that there was an inner world and that these wires led downward through the earth's crust to the surface of Pellucidar. And yet... Well, I sat there all night, listening to that tantalizing clicking, now and then moving the sending key just to let the other end know that the instrument had been discovered. In the morning, after carefully returning the box to its hole and covering it over with sand, I called my servants about me, snatched a hurried breakfast, mounted my horse, and started upon a forced march for Algiers. I arrived here today. In writing you this letter, I feel that I am making a fool of myself. There is no David Innes. There is no Diane the Beautiful. There is no world within a world. Pellucidar is but a realm of your imagination, nothing more. But... The incident of the finding of that buried telegraph instrument upon the lonely Sahara is little short of uncanny in view of your story of the adventures of David Innes. 
I have called it one of the most remarkable coincidences in modern fiction. I called it literature before, but, again, pardon my candor, your story is not. And now, why am I writing you? Heaven knows. Unless it is that the persistent clicking of that unfathomable enigma out there in the vast silences of the Sahara has so wrought upon my nerves that reason refuses longer to function sanely. I cannot hear it now, yet I know that far away to the south, all alone beneath the sands, it is still pounding out its vain, frantic appeal. It is maddening. It is your fault. I want you to release me from it. Cable me at once, at my expense, that there was no basis of fact for your story at the Earth's core. Very respectfully yours, Cogden Nestor, Dash and Dash Club, Algiers, June 1st. Ten minutes after reading this letter, I had cabled Mr. Nestor as follows. Story true. Await me, Algiers. As fast as train and boat would carry me, I sped toward my destination. For all those dragging days my mind was a whirl of mad conjecture, of frantic hope, of numbing fear. The finding of the telegraph instrument practically assured me that David Innes had driven Perry's iron mole back through the earth's crust to the buried world of Pellucidar. But what adventures had befallen him since his return? Had he found Diane the Beautiful, his half-savage mate, safe among his friends? Or had Huja the Sly One succeeded in his nefarious schemes to abduct her? Did Abner Perry, the lovable old inventor and paleontologist, still live? Had the federated tribes of Pellucidar succeeded in overthrowing the mighty Mahars, the dominant race of reptilian monsters, and their fierce gorilla-like soldiery, the savage Sagoths? I must admit that I was in a state bordering upon nervous prostration when I entered the Dash and Dash Club in Algiers and inquired for Mr. Nestor. A moment later I was ushered into his presence to find myself clasping hands with the sort of chap that the world holds only too few of. He was a tall, smooth-faced man of about thirty, clean-cut, straight and strong, and weather-tanned to the hue of a desert Arab. I liked him immensely from the first, and I hoped that after our three months together in the desert country, three months not entirely lacking in adventure, he found that a man may be a writer of impossible trash, and yet have some redeeming qualities. The day following my arrival at Algiers we left for the south, Nestor having made all arrangements in advance, guessing, as he naturally did, that I could be coming to Africa for but a single purpose, to hasten at once to the buried telegraph instrument and wrest its secret from it. In addition to our native servants, we took along an English telegraph operator named Frank Downs. Nothing of interest enlivened our journey by rail and caravan till we came to the cluster of date palms about the ancient well upon the rim of the Sahara. It was the very spot at which I first had seen David Innes. If he had ever raised a cairn above the telegraph instrument, no sign of it remained now. Had it not been for the chance that caused Cogden Nestor to throw down his sleeping rug directly over the hidden instrument, it might still be clicking there unheard, 
and this story still unwritten. When we reached the spot and unearthed the little box, the instrument was quiet, nor did repeated attempts upon the part of our telegraphers succeed in winning a response from the other end of the line. After several days of futile endeavor to raise Pellucidar, we had begun to despair. I was as positive that the other end of that little cable protruded through the surface of the inner world as I am that I sit here today in my study, when about midnight of the fourth day I was awakened by the sound of the instrument. Leaping to my feet, I grasped Downs roughly by the neck and dragged him out of his blankets. He didn't need to be told what caused my excitement, for the instant he was awake, he too heard the long-hoped-for click and with a whoop of delight pounced upon the instrument. Nestor was on his feet almost as soon as I. The three of us huddled about that little box as if our lives depended upon the message it had for us. Downs interrupted the clicking with his sending key. The noise of the receiver stopped instantly. Ask who it is, Downs, I directed. He did so, and while we awaited the Englishman's translation of the reply, I doubt if either Nestor or I breathed. He says he's David Innes, said Downs. He wants to know who we are. Tell him, said I, and that we want to know how he is and all that has befallen him since I last saw him. For two months I talked with David Innes almost every day, and as Downs translated, either Nestor or I took notes. From these, arranged in chronological order, I have set down the following account of the further adventures of David Innes at the Earth's core, practically in his own words. Chapter 1 Lost on Pellucidar The Arabs of whom I wrote you at the end of my last letter, Innes began, and whom I thought to be enemies intent only upon murdering me, proved to be exceedingly friendly. They were searching for the very band of marauders that had threatened my existence. The huge Ramphorhynchus-like reptile that I had brought back with me from the inner world, the ugly Mehar that Huja the Sly One had substituted for my dear Diane at the moment of my departure, filled them with wonder and with awe. Nor less so did the mighty subterranean prospector, which had carried me to Pellucidar and back again, and which lay out in the desert about two miles from my camp. With their help, I managed to get the unwieldy tons of its great bulk into a vertical position, the nose deep in a hole we had dug in the sand, and the rest of it supported by the trunks of date palms.